0: a lot to cover. So I'm just going to get started right now. It's working. Okay. So during our snowstorms, I spent a day watching bread rise because there was no bread in the store. So I decided to make my own bread and watching hummingbirds bite at my feeder. This is the little hummingbird out my kitchen window. So she would sit there and clean herself and then look around and if a male came, pow, off she'd go after. And she wouldn't let anybody feed at her little warm sugar water. Nobody could get in. And I wanted to put out 200 creatures that said his and hers because the males were never allowed in. She was so aggressive. Well, I wanted to provide for all, and she wasn't having none of it. The desire to be at the top of the pecking order is something that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Thank you. And last week, when Mona taught, we heard from Peter. So, if you have your Bibles there and you want to open them, we're going to start at the end of Matthew 19. Then Peter chimed in, Hey, Jesus. We left everything and followed you. What do we get out of it? And Jesus replied, Yes, you have followed me. In the recreation of the world, when the Son of Man will rule gloriously, you who have followed me will also rule, starting with the 12 tribes of Israel. And not only you, but anyone who sacrifices home, Family, fields, whatever, because of me, will get it all back a hundred times over. Not to mention the considerable bonus of eternal life. This is the great reversal, he says. Many of the first ending up last, and the last first. Well, this poses a question. What do we get out of it? Well, what do we get out of following Jesus? Well, he says, if you lose everything, then you'll get it back. But who knows exactly what it is? I don't know, I haven't given up lands or field or home or anything. I I went to my high school reunion, and one of the men that I sang in high school choir with asked me if I was still singing. And I told him I sang with a group from our church that goes out and does Vesper services in retirement communities and that I have a singing partner, and we take home about communion to those who can't get to church. And he said, oh, Robin, you're going to get so many rewards in heaven. (laughs) And I was like, what? Because who knows? I I mean, I think almost everything I do is tainted with sin. So I, last night at 10 o'clock, I go to my computer because I keep my phone with me, and I should get my emails on my phone, And I didn't have any, so I just went to the computer. And there was uh, from Sylvia. She hadn't gotten the questions. And I thought, oh, I just felt terrible. I couldn't send them to her at 10 o'clock at night. And then from Joan, saying, is there a table leaders meeting today? And the answer is, I forgot. (laughs) So there is no table leaders meeting today. (laughs) And both of these things worked on my pride, because I like to think I'm on top of things. Started sitting, so you see, everything we do is tainted a little bit with pride. So you all know that I forget things and I don't check my email. I'm just telling you, but it also hurts my pride when I'm not perfect. So that—that's who I am, and that's my pride and everything tainted by sin. So the whole idea of rewards in heaven and who's going to be last and who's going to be first and who gets what is this? Mystery, And my thought is that it's none of my business. In Matthew 6, Jesus says that when you give or when you pray or when you do anything for anybody, it needs to be in secret because God rewards in secret. So if you tell anybody, then you don't get rewards. I don't know. I don't get it. So Jesus is going to now tell a story to illustrate what the kingdom of heaven is like in this whole rewards business. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, now a denarius is one day's wages, for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So, this is about God's kingdom and being invited to work into God's kingdom. And this is at 6 in the morning. Now, these are workers that don't know where their benefits are gonna come from. They're like the men that you see at Home Depot or those places that stand outside. They're day laborers and if they don't get hired today, they may not eat. So that's what this parable, this story is about. People who have to trust God every single day for their work and for their ability to eat. These people live on the rugged edge of life with no idea how to provide for themselves. At nine in the morning, the landowner went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. This time he didn't promise them a whole day's wages. So they went. Then he went out again about noon and about three, and did the same thing. And about five, he did the same thing, and he found others standing around. Why have you been standing around all day? And they said, no one's hired us. And he said, you also go and work on my field. He didn't promise anything this time, just that they could work for an hour or two. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Well, notice he doesn't start with the ones hired first in the morning. No, he leaves them till last, which is what this is all about, the first and the last. So the last ones hired know nothing about what they're going to get. The workers who were hired about 5 in the afternoon came, and they received a denarius, a whole day's wages. How? Wow, we're going to eat tonight. Our kids are going to eat tonight. So when those who were hired first, well, they got a denarius. <laughs> How much more are we going to get? And when they received your denarius, they started to grumble against the landowner. Did you? What, what's going on here? How come they got as much as we got? And they were hired last. They only worked one hour. And you made them eat them with us. And we worked in the heat of the day. Okay, they are grumbling. They didn't say, thank you, and they didn't say, please hire me again for tomorrow. Wasn't I a good worker? No, all they do is complain. But he answered one of them, am I being unfair to you, friend? Didn't you agree to work for this much? So take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I'm jealous, generous? So, yes, they are jealous, and they're complaining. So, then Jesus says this line, The last will be first, and the first will be last. So this parable is upside down. And this parable grates on our feelings of fairness. When one child inherits more than another, maybe one was the caregiver, and... Got the same and thought they should have gotten more. Um, You know how fair you have to be with your kids because they they hate it when you're not being fair. So, what is Jesus saying here? Like my little hummingbird, some of us want all the benefits to ourselves and they grumble against God. Now, I have heard this parable used. as a a reason to not support unions. This is not what this is talking about. This is talking about God and his generosity and who's last and who's first. So this is about people being invited into God's kingdom and being grateful. God's way of thinking is upside down to our way of thinking. And if you don't like it, God has an escape clause This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Say it with me. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is God's creation and his way of doing things, his way of thinking. to supply daily food for all even all the hummingbirds not just one and our privilege is to dig into the way that he thinks his according to us upside down way of thinking and make it our thinking so now we're going to get back into our scripture and Jesus is going to talk some more to his disciples that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, Now, I want you to know, when it says up to Jerusalem, last week, Mona taught us that Jerusalem is set on the top of a hill. So every time you go to Jerusalem, you go up. It has nothing to do with direction, north, south, east, or west. So they're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus says, We're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. I want you to look. This is the second time today we have heard this phrase, Son of Man. And whenever I come across this phrase, Son of Man, I tell you to refer to a handout. Well, it it turns out, it was pointed out to me that I hadn't handed it out this year. I handed it out when we studied Mark. So I have made a new handout for everybody, and it's on your tables. And it says, Son of Man. It lists every single reference of Jesus using this phrase about himself in the book of Matthew. This is only Matthew references. So I'm not going to go over that with you today, but um, maybe if you have time, you you could read these references in your group, because you'll see that Jesus starts slowly calling himself the Son of Man. But by the end of Matthew, it's almost every single verse. I mean, over and over, I'm the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. So we're going to just take a brief look at what this is. It starts in Daniel 7, and Daniel says, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, everybody, how many of you have pens? I left pens on the tables. Does everybody have a pen? Anybody not have a pen? Okay, because I have more. So these pens are a gift from my husband because he loves pens. And, and so he, and he loves the Bible Project, and so he had, he called the people at the Bible Project and said, can I put your website on pens and give them out? And they said, well, of course you can. So he had these pens made, and so he wanted me to give one to each of you today. Now, Rambees, we're going to show a video of the Son of Man as explained by this group. if
1: If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and worked for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of the dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What? world is this about. Well he's told that these beasts symbolize violent tribal kings and their empires. Oh like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures, capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we do behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf, like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster, and so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human, but instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain, who's jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge dominate, and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence, and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved, having this bizarre dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room, where a court is set up, and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right. There hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human. And he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more. All humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Huh? worship. So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God-human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives. And he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device, but Jesus viewed it as his throne, And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst, and then he overcame it with his divine life and blood. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast. And as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now, Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus's life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus died in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love.
0: Okay. So, I hope that illuminates a little bit about what the Son of Man means to Jesus and what it means to us. You may need to watch that a couple times to truly understand it. But you have, everybody has a pen that has that website, and you can find other things, too. So now Jesus, verse 17, was going up to Jerusalem on the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. He's going to be last, but soon he's going to be first. They're gonna hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. This time, he gives even more details about his coming death. So we have to ask ourselves, who is listening to him? Well, there's one woman who's listening, she gets it. And her name, I believe, is Salome then the mother of zebedee's sons came to jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him what is it you want he asked she said grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom you don't know what you're asking jesus said to them can you drink the cup i'm going to drink we can they answered jesus said to them You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my father. She is one of my favorite women in the Bible. She is a brave mother. I slammed shut four commentaries wrote by men who disabuse her. Say she was foolish, all kinds of things. But she was brave, faithful, loyal, and true. And I'm going to prove it to you. She heard Jesus say what, she, what, what happened to those who follow him in Matthew 19, that when the Son of Man comes, they would rule with him. She heard him say that. And she knew exactly what she was asking for this passage says she was the mother of james and john now jesus affectionately calls these boys sons of thunder i have a great suspicion that he knew them from childhood and he knew their father who was probably a loud mouthed short-tempered fisherman And if you have been with a man in a boat, you know what loud-mouthed, short-tempered men sound like as their voice echoes across the water. And so he called them sons of thunder, because their father was called thunder. Okay. So, then we find out that her son, John, whom she wants to be on Jesus' left or right, puts her at the cross and says she is Jesus' aunt, Mary's sister. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister. This is the mother of Zebedee's sons. So she must have known Mary's story. She knew Elizabeth's story. They probably all grieved together when John the Baptist was murdered by Herod. They probably had gone to the Passover in Jerusalem together as families. Jesus must have played with these boys when they were young, probably held young John on his lap. And when John says, "I," there was the disciple that Jesus loved, he knew he was loved probably from a young boy by Jesus. And so they knew exactly what was happening. They knew the history of their family. And they knew when he said he was the Son of Man exactly what that meant. She was part of the woman support group. Among them, in Mount Mark says, were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. And I picture this conversation. Jesus comes to where these boys are fishing. And he says, "Come and follow me." And Salome and, and um, the Zebedee—they have this conversation. And he says, "I will stay here and work and send you money, and you go support them." And this group of women follow them everywhere, and they are always silent in Scripture until this moment. Mark 16:1 and two says she was at the tomb and Salome, others at Salome, bought spices so they might go to the tomb. The passage says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus' body. They saw that the stone had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, sitting on the bright side, and they were alarmed, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. So she knows exactly what she is asking for. And when he says to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink, they know exactly what that cup is, and they say yes. And they will. Because they understand, just as our video showed, that true glory comes from dying to self. And they are ready to die to self. James is going to be the first martyr in Acts 22. And John will be exiled to Patmos. But Salome is a woman of faith and courage and loyal, sacrificial love. She is a servant to all. She listens, obeys, and trusts God. Jesus has his cup, and Salome has her own cup, the cup of suffering and glory. And the last will be first, and the first will be last. They will be there, but it won't matter where you sit. Verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together. He's always patching them up. And he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, And whoever wants to be first must be the slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many." Okay, naturally these young men are jealous. They don't get it, so he so patiently explains to them, again, what servanthood and sacrifice is all about in leadership. So he tells them again what he has come to do and who he is. And then Matthew inserts a story. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd. Nobody's. They're nothing. They shh, shh, shh. Don't don't talk. Don't yell out. Don't do that. They're the the low men on the totem pole. And they said, be quiet. But these men shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped. And he called them. Bring them here to me. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, We want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. Now, I had to ask myself, why did Matthew tack this story on here? And here's what I think. He wants again for you to see Jesus' compassion for the people who are ignored and hushed up by everyone else. These men were last. And it says, they followed him. They're going to be part of the first. They were last, but they're going to be part of the first. In this section of Matthew, we have people asking for things. First, we had Peter. What do we get out of it? And Jesus tells them everything they're going to get out of it and more, more than they could ask or think. And then we have this brave mother who says, Lord, will you grant me a favor for my children? And he says, says, I can't give you exactly what you want, but I'm offering you my cup. Will you take it? And they say, yes, we will take it. And then we have these blind men who say um, they want their sight. And Jesus says, what can I do for you? So all of these people here are talking to God about what they need and what they want. And when Christina told us about becoming childlike, it was the ability to tell God exactly what you want and what you need and to know that he's listening. So I'm just going to ask you now to... Take your pens that you all got, (laughs) and on a piece of paper, I'm going to prayerfully ask you these three questions. I want you to write down the first thing that comes to your mind. And if you want, as groups later, in your small groups, you can talk about these questions and what, if you heard an answer, And if you didn't hear an answer, maybe you could pray for each other that you will hear an answer. So the first question is, and I'm going to give you a minute just to write it down. Lord, what do I get out of this? second question. Lord, will you grant me a favor and bless my children? And now, hear Jesus asking you this question, and I want you to write down the answer. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, we thank you that you of the Son of Man sitting on your throne, and that we will all worship you together one day. We thank you that you have given us the tools to overcome the beasts in our life, because you overcame the beast. We pray, Lord, that as we learn to die to ourselves, that you will show us that that is the way to live For your kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.